And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, I don't know how many times I have said the following words. This is the most important article I have ever written, or this is the most important book I've ever written, or this is the most important workshop I have ever given, but today I can say this is the most important podcast that I've ever recorded, and the good news is I'm not alone. I want to welcome Chris Pedersen, a fellow uh, investor, fellow researcher, in fact, one of the most wonderful gifts I've ever been given. And Chris, that is the time that you have put in to help us here at Sound Investing and the Foundation. Welcome. Welcome to Sound Investing. Oh, thank you, Paul. Thanks for that wonderful introduction, and it's great to be here. It's uh, it's a pleasure, and uh, you know how gifts work. They go back and forth. It's been a great gift to be able to work with you and learn from you and be part of uh, helping your investors and your, your readers and your listeners, so uh, it's a pleasure. Well, I can say, Chris, that uh, I would not be here talking about this topic today if it were not for all of the effort that you have put in to creating what I think is probably the best target date portfolio approach that that I've ever seen in all my years uh, as an investment advisor and teacher and all. And so today I'm going to take the time with your help. We're going to talk about target date funds, the pros and cons. We're going to talk about what you could do with a target date fund that would make it more productive. As you know, we're always looking for the the best unit of return per unit of risk. Mm -hmm. And and also what our solution is uh, to help clients. So we're going to talk a little bit, uh, by the way, When I say our solution for clients, I really mean our solution for the people who are following our work, because you and I, we don't have clients. Nope, nope. We have have people we try to help do better with their investments, um, but I retired some years ago. No more clients. Yeah, and we have multiple solutions, so uh, it'll be fun. Yes, absolutely. So let's get started. Let's talk about target date funds. Do you want to give us a a brief overview of what they are and maybe talk about a couple of the advantages? Yeah, sure. We, uh, you know, uh, when you and I first met a year ago, you had this aspiration to offer uh, portfolios at Motif Investing, including uh, the ultimate buy and hold portfolios. And then eventually we wanted to get to target date funds. And in looking at that, we had to figure out well, what makes a good target date fund? What makes a bad target date fund? How are they communicated? And uh, target date funds, a, a lot of your readers, listeners know about them already, uh, and they know that they automatically manage risk down as you get closer to retirement. They automatically manage a collection of investments to give you uh, what they think is a good return per unit of risk. So in some ways, it's kind of like a robo-advisor, uh, on uh, a light robo-advisor. 
And you just pick one that matches the year you're going to retire in. So if you're going to retire in 2050, you pick the target date retirement fund that's got 2050 in the title. So it's it's really simple, really easy. Uh, and uh, a lot of people can invest in them through 401ks. So so they're popular and they have a lot of advantages. You you know, you put it on autopilot and it's it's off and running. And uh, as you get closer to retirement and you can take you can't take as much risk because you need that money to be there in retirement. They automatically lower the risk by bringing in more bonds. And, and so a lot of, there's a lot of goodness in them, a lot of advantages. And, and let me talk about uh, what, what I believe is the ultimate goodness about them. Uh, when I did workshops, I almost always asked, how many of you have a pension? And it, it probably half the people or more had had the pensions, and, and we're in retirement. A lot of folks came out to figure out how to invest their money in retirement. And one thing we talked about was how how comforting it was, how it lowered anxiety to know that every month you had a check coming in for the rest of your life. That is a luxury for a lot of people. As we know, fewer and fewer people get a pension anymore. Uh, I think we're down to something less than 20% of the major corporations offer a pension. And that was a huge advantage to, to people who were my parents' age. But here's what we know about pensions and why they worked because the money went into the hands, went into accounts for the retirees or for the, 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 the people who worked for the company with the idea of retiring and having regular income. And the pension trustees took the responsibility for how much in stocks and how much in bonds. And, and so it was all programmed and professionally run to make sure the money was there when it was needed. And the reality is maybe one out of a hundred of the people who worked for that company would have known how to manage that money on their own. Well, this is what a target date fund does in a way. It, it replaces the individual having to make lots of decisions, when to be in the market, when to be out, how much in stocks, how much in bonds, how much in U.S., how much international value, growth, small, large, all of these decisions that can be very confusing. And the individual today in a 401k, if they don't put their money into a target date fund, are stuck having to do all that on their own. And what most of them do is they just don't do it. They just put their money in. They don't watch it. They don't do the right thing. But those target date funds are being managed intelligently without the emotion that the individual investor has about their money. And all of those are huge pluses with the target date funds. Absolutely. Yeah. But there got to be some problems, too. Well, and I th I think that's why you you wanted to offer something. You thought that there was a good chance to improve, and uh, you know as we as we started to dig into that, um, I think our instincts were validated. Uh, we we always were worried. I remember listening to your podcast years ago. You would mention that they have bonds in the early years, right? Why does somebody who's twenty five need bonds? Um, the and typically it's a very small percentage. It's like. 
10%, 20%. And that's not providing much protection from, from the downside of a bear market. And uh, yet it's a drag on the return, right? It's, as you've pointed out in the past, every 10% you put into bonds is going to reduce your return by about a half a percent. And so uh, does a young person get anything good out of that? We, you know, we kind of questioned questioned that, and then uh, we also uh, noticed when we looked at the target date funds that they have um, a, a a very steady mix of assets. There, so whatever the asset classes are of large and small value and growth. Uh, upfront at the early years tends to stay the same all the way to the end. There's some some target date funds do a little bit of mixing, but for the most part, all they're doing is uh, transitioning you over time from maybe that 10 or 20% bonds into 30, 40, 50, 60. It, it varies by fund. Well, I, I'll tell you, I looked at Vanguard because that's the, you know, they're a biggie in the target date fund industry. And I looked at uh, what do you get in terms of equity uh, asset classes uh, as a 25-year-old, and you get the total U.S. market, and you get the total international market, and I think you get about two-thirds in U.S. and about one-third in international. Then I looked at a at a 65-year-old. To the extent that the 65-year-old has a target date fund, well, yes, we know they're going to have more bonds in the portfolio, but guess what? They have exactly the same exposure to large cap U.S. through the total market and the international total market. They have done nothing to take advantage of giving people exposure to asset classes that have this long-term advantage over these very large companies. So that obviously is one of the uh, uh, of the of the the big problems that we see in today's target date funds. And I want to add something to what you said about the bonds. I looked just out of curiosity. We have a fine-tuning table that we've done for years, and in that table we show. Uh, portfolios from all bonds to all equities in 10% increments. So I was kind of curious, what was the worst 12-month experience of an all-equity portfolio? And it was a loss between 1970 and 2016. It was a loss of about 51%. And that's a big loss. So I also looked at the experience in terms of a loss for the person who had 90% in equities and 10% in bonds. Because you made the point, how much protection is that 10%? The worst 12 months, a loss of 47%. So this is what Vanguard is doing, like it or not. They're taking a young person's portfolio you said it, they're cutting their return by one half of 1% a year for as long as they maintain that 10%. And what are they protecting? A little tiny part of the loss that historically is going to be turned around into a gain in the long run anyway from everything we know about the past. So you're absolutely right. We got to 
get the bonds out of the target date funds for very young people, and we need to give them exposure to asset classes that give better long-term returns. Well, and that that analysis that you just did is for a lump sum investor, right? You were looking at the uh, 47% versus a 51% uh uh, decline in in balance or drawdown over that period of time. If uh, that investor were a young investor who was investing regularly, they might not even they would have seen a much smaller decline in the balance because when the market was down, they'd be buying assets on sale and they'd be increasing their balance. And so uh, that that was one of the biggest things that surprised me as I kind of dug into this is the resilience of a young person's portfolio. Uh, not only do they have a long time to come back from a market decline and the opportunity to invest a significant portion of their investment in in things they're buying cheap, but uh, because they're investing regularly, uh, it's hard for them to see a big decline because uh, they're putting a lot of money in on a regular basis and they're starting at zero. So uh, most of the the risk of a balance decline comes 10 years in, 15 years in, 20 years in, when the amount you're adding starts to become small compared to the balance that's large. And as you may remember, we have done some studies about the long-term returns of value and small cap. And when you get out to uh, 40 years, for sure, the worst case returns are something like 10% compound rate of return. Boy, I mean, that's, that is an asset class that we look forward to buying at cheap prices. And there is an emotional aspect of what you just talked about with these young people. I really love to hear when we've been through a tough market, a young person say, I haven't lost any money. I have more now than I had a year ago, and that happened during a market decline, and the reason they see a profit is because they kept putting money to work, and that's the way we want them to act as opposed to the – they're not scaredy cats, but it's real easy to be scared out of investing in the market when it's down and dirty because everybody is is kind of semi-panicked when the market's down like 30, 40, 50 percent. But that's the time for young people to break out the bubbly and celebrate because buying stuff cheap, that's in their best interest. Absolutely. Their grandparents may not feel that way, but they should. So the question became, what can we do to help investors do better? And um, let's talk about the, this value asset class. And in particular, it's not just value, it's value and, and small uh, value. What could be done to do better with a target date fund, given what we do know about the returns and the risk of small cap value? You know, I think we were... We were inspired very early on to try and take advantage of two ideas you've promoted to uh, your listeners. One was the idea that tilting more towards small and value uh, would give a higher long-term return. And uh, none of the 
industry standard target date funds that we looked at did that. They, uh, for the most part, they look like the ultimate buy and hold portfolio or even more like an S&P 500 or total market. They tend to be fairly uh, uh, big. They're focused on on larger asset classes and something closer to the total market. And so that was a question we wanted to know if, uh, you know, if we have this long history saying small and value can deliver a better, a better re- return, uh, what will happen if we shift the portfolio in those early years in that direction. And then you had also done a lot of work around the idea that somebody might set money aside for a child or a grandchild. And so we were wondering, well, what happens if you extend the duration of a target date fund so that instead of it being from just 25 to 65, your working years, it goes from zero to 65. And maybe in those early years, it's entirely small cap value, uh, like you've recommended in the past. And uh, the trick was figuring out a way to to answer whether that was a good idea or not. Because usually what you've done in the past is show uh, a history, a single history, right? We look at 40 years of history, 50 years of history, and how uh, a portfolio, as you pointed out in the uh, the fine tuning table, how does a portfolio with ten percent fixed equi- uh, fixed income do a twenty percent, thirty percent on up to a hundred percent fixed in- income? And that approach doesn't work with target date funds because you have all these moving pieces and you run the risk that you tune all of those moving pieces, the glide path to just one history. And oh, then that's, talk about that's that. fragile. Yeah, that glide path, that's a that's a term a lot of people may not that's know. True. That's important. Would yeah. you just tell us about glide the glide path? Yeah, the glide so glide path is a term uh, to describe how these assets are changing through the life of an investor. Uh, so if you pick a target date fund that is uh, 65 years in the future, you're a, uh, you know at zero years of age, um, then the glide path is going to say, what assets are you invested in at zero years of age? And then at age 20, you know what assets are you invested in at age 30, 40, and so forth? So uh, most target date funds, the, the biggest thing you notice in them is that the, the bonds are increasing over time. And so the glide path tells you how much you have in fixed income and bonds at different ages. It also tells you how much you have in small or large or you know, the various asset classes. So the glide path is just a word to describe assets over time. And I think people, if they want to see examples of glide paths, they can go to Vanguard, for example, and look at any target date fund. And at the bottom of the page on portfolio, you will see the glide path, very colorful. It'll show how much in bonds. And for example, I think that they are a 10% in bonds up through about age 40. And then they start ramping up the bonds from there until certainly age 65. Yep. And so th- that glide path, that's really going to drive your return in the long run. And of course, in our particular case, we're not just concerned about how much in stocks and how much in bonds, but what stocks? And in essence, what bonds as well? Because there's a full range of different equity asset classes as we've been talking about. So that that glide path is is really key. And I love the way you have built our glide path. 
path because it, and we'll talk more about this, but uh, shows all those asset classes coming in, getting more conservative over time, but you see exactly year by year what's going on. Yeah, the glide the glide path definitely drives the returns. And so uh, the trick is figuring out how do you how do you uh, compare glide paths? How do we decide uh, whether a, a change is going to improve the investor's outcome? And that's where comparing to one history doesn't work. We needed a, a different approach. So I want to get to that in just a, a second, but I do want to insert a comment here because I think to some of our listeners, what what we're recommending may sound as if it is awfully aggressive, maybe way more risky than what you might get if you went to Vanguard. Now, one, as I think our listeners know, I had the good fortune. I mean, it was truly an honor to spend 90 minutes with John Bogle. And uh, I even got a chance to call him Jack. Now, that was pretty nice. <laughs> nice cool. guy. I mean, he's just... Uh, an office full of stuffed bears, a very congenial, laid-back, smart, smart guy. But I kept asking him questions about why Vanguard builds their portfolios the way they do with all these total market indexes, large companies, heavily growth-oriented companies. And his answer really is pretty clear. And that is that they build portfolios. And when I say for the masses, there's nothing wrong with the masses. We, we want everybody to get a decent return. But they are building portfolios that will give people a sense of comfort. For example, if you're in a total market index, which is mostly the S&P 500, and the market goes down – Everybody else's portfolio probably went down, and so you're not feeling like you're alone, and hopefully you stay the course because you're, you're like kind of everybody else. When you start building portfolios with some value and some small cap and different amounts of international, and even in the internationals, you've got small cap value, let's say, or some emerging markets. All of a sudden, that portfolio starts to look different than the S&P 500. And you can have a year when the S&P 500 does very well, uh, where a more broadly diversified with all these other asset classes, they don't do as well. And all of a sudden, people are uncomfortable. Why is my neighbor making money and doing well when I didn't have a very good year? So... It, it does take a different kind of investor, I think, to be able or willing to, to take, a, a, I'll, I'll say, a more sophisticated approach because this is work that comes right out of the academic community. This is not something you and I drummed up here on our own. There are a lot of people who feel strongly that this is the right thing to do. So with that in mind, let's go back to some of the things that you found when you started testing the long-term return of both the more traditional versus the kinds of portfolios that we'd like people to build. Yeah, it's it's really important that investors invest in something they believe in, 
Right. Yeah. I think that that was your point about Jack Bogle is that when he makes a recommendation that's going to be broadcast to the world uh, and he can't be there one by one to explain it, it has to be something that is easy to understand for the for the oh, very wide range of people. And uh, part of what we're relying on is that your listeners have taken time to learn more and uh, learn that there is an advantage to investing in small, an advantage to investing in value. There is a little more risk that comes along with it. There's so, uh, but the the number one risk to investors is themselves that they're going to bail out on something they don't believe in. So it's really important uh, that. Uh, that you understand what you invest in and you invest in something you believe in. And it's important we explain why we think this is a better plan so that people can decide whether they believe in it or not. Um, what we what we found when we looked at, uh, well, first of all, what we had to do to figure out a way to measure these different things is we had to go to, rather than just a historical back test, we had to build a, uh, a Monte Carlo simulator. And that may be unfamiliar to some of your listeners, so we could we should spend just a little bit of time on, on what that is. Uh, what a Monte Carlo simulator does is it takes uh, the historical returns, the historical data that we do have, and it uh, randomly grabs a year out of the history. And for that year, it grabs the return for all of the different asset classes. How did small cap value do that year? How did large cap value? How did large growth do? How did small growth do? How did uh, the fixed income do? How much inflation was there? All of that, uh, you can think of it as, uh, it's like a 20-sided die you've grabbed out, right? And it's got on each side, you know, one of these answers. And you use that then to figure out uh, what your uh, simulated portfolio would have done for a year. And then you grab another one and you do that again. And you keep iterating with these random years. And pretty soon you have a 40-year history or a 50-year history. Uh, it's not a history. It's a simulated future or however you want to think of it. It's a scenario and experience. And uh, after you do that once, you do it again. And then you do it again, and you do it thousands and thousands of times. Um, so uh, Monte Carlo simulation has been around a long time. A lot of listeners have probably worked with financial planners thinking about retirement, and their financial planners will come back and say, you have a 50% chance of running out of money. That was probably from a Monte Carlo simulator, right? If you follow our investment advice, you've got X percentage of running chance of running out of money. That was probably from a Monte Carlo simulator. So uh, the trick was we had to build a Monte Carlo simulator that would work with the assets varying over time, depending on age. Um, and so that took a little bit of time, but we, we put it together. And through that, we were also able to look at uh, what the the downside risk is, what the balance decline risk is year by year for these different glide paths. Because if you go to some of the target date funds in the industry, they'll tell you risk is the return variability, right? You know, how whether the returns uh, vary by 10% every year or 5% every year. We, we think the more meaningful measure of risk is how much is your balance going to be off, right? And that depends a lot on how, uh, where you are in your investment experience. In your young years, when you're investing a lot, you have very low risk of seeing that balance decline. And uh, so once we had that all together, we were able to uh, analyze uh, 
Vanguard-like target date funds. We used Vanguard as a reference and built something that looked like it to see what, and that's we think of that as kind of a typical industry standard approach. And we used that as a baseline. And then we compared it to uh, tilting more towards small, more towards value, uh, pushing bonds out a little bit. And and we discovered a lot of really interesting things. Probably the most interesting thing is that you can take uh, as much risk as you want in your early years, and your balance isn't going to decline by very much because you're putting you're putting so much in. At the end of year one, if you're off by 50%, you put another year's worth in. If you're doing annual contributions, you're you're back to uh, no decline essentially. So, uh, uh, can I interrupt for just oh, one please, second? yeah, go ahead. I want I, I'm always sensitive when we suggest that there's very low risk in buying something that declines because in the long run it's going to likely go up. Mm -hmm. I can only say that from all of the history that I know about broad market indexes or or broadly diversified portfolios. I don't want to suggest that by investing in Washington Mutual stock – or Enron stock uh, when it's in decline is a smart thing to do. Absolutely. So we are talking when we talk about it's okay to have things go down, it's based on this very high probability that those broadly diversified portfolios will turn around and go up in the future. So I'm yeah, sorry to a, interrupt, but I want to make sure. No, it's a good it's a good point. And the other thing I think uh, that I should say in terms of finishing out the description of a Monte Carlo simulation is that what comes out of it, in the same way that the back testing history doesn't predict the future, uh, Monte Carlo simulations don't predict the future. They're a a very cloudy crystal ball. Um, but when you're making decisions about how to invest money, that's about the best we have, right? Uh, they're a way to take advantage of the historical information going back, you know, for all of these asset classes, we only go back to about 1995. We did some testing beyond that, but then you have to uh, kind of fill in some gaps and things. Um, but but it's a cloudy crystal ball. And so it, it can give you uh, some some idea about where things have a higher chance of success or a lower chance of success based on that history. Uh, but since it's the best we've got, that's what we use. Now let me let me compare the the Monte Carlo to the work that we've done over the years with the fine tuning table. So with the fine tuning table, you have from 1970 through 2016, one year at a time, you see the devastation of 73 and 74. In essence, you see the devastation of 1987 when in one day the market went down over 22%. You see the devastation of uh, the 2000 through 2002 and the 2007 through 2009. So there were lots of bad times in there and fortunately a lot of good times as well. So it's one picture in terms of the series. So the Monte Carlo, you're saying the Monte Carlo studies are a better picture because in essence, it takes these many, many years and many asset classes and runs them in many ways. So would you say the Monte Carlo, if we, when we look at the returns that we can see, is a better predictive tool 
than just looking at the 1970 through 2016 results. It it is, and the biggest the biggest reason it is for the target date funds is that uh, since we're varying the asset classes over time and looking for improved returns, if we measured it against just the one history, you run the risk that you would go back and say, oh, there was a market decline in this year, so I went all to fixed equity in that year. Uh, and uh, and Fixed had, income? Or, or, or fixed yeah. income, yes, sorry, fixed income. And uh, and I avoided, I avoided the downturn, and then I go to all stocks the next year, and I ride the wave back up, and you end up with something that has a phenomenal performance for one history and that's all it works with and and so we couldn't do that that would that would be silly and the way you avoid that is by randomizing the years basically yeah in other words there's no risk in the past we always know what we should have done absolutely and uh well well that's great now i do want to point out one other variable here that uh, impacts every one of us, uh, whether we're 21 or, in my case, just turning 74. And that is luck. Because um, when we looked, I've talked in the past about the market from 1975 to 1999, the S&P 500 compounds at about 17% a year. Now, I'm going to guess that that's a 25-year period that somewhere in those Monte Carlo studies, there's a 25-year period where the market makes 17% a year. But what are the chances that I'm going to be there or my children are going to be the recipients of that 25 years of those phenomenal returns? Well, it'll be luck. Yeah. And, and there's also bad luck, as we've seen from 2000 through 2016, where the S&P 500 compounds at about five or less. Again, it's luck. It's just the other kind of luck that we don't want to have. So that's built in there, but it's still that luck is going to have an impact on every in- Investor, absolutely. And what comes out of the Monte Carlo simulator is uh, because you're simulating many, many different scenarios. You, uh, it's it's a statistical distribution. It's you can think of it as uh, a few bad results, a few grand results, and a whole bunch of results in the in middle. It. And there's something you know. There's kind of a peak. There's a place that is uh, a point where half of the results are above that and half below that. That's the median. That's where we focused and and uh, included numbers in the article, I think. Uh, and um, it, one of the fun things to do, you may remember we did this a couple of times along the way, is to plot some of the scenarios that come out of the Monte Carlo simulator. And you get exactly what you said. You can you can see, you know, sometimes the experience has this huge downturn somewhere along the way and a slow recovery. And sometimes it's up and to the right and everything's grand. So that all goes back to it being a very cloudy crystal ball. It doesn't well, tell you the answer. Let's yet. look at that cloudy crystal ball. And uh, I can tell you right now that people want to know what did you see 
in that crystal ball when you looked at at these different combinations of strategies. And by the way, I don't know that we've talked about all the different strategies that you've looked at. So let's talk about all those different strategies that you you measured uh, and talk about the outcome. Yeah. So we we looked at uh, a Vanguard like target date fund, trying to model it as close as we could. Um, we looked at what you've requested in, or, or suggested in the past, which is this idea that people would. Uh, take a portion of what they're putting into their retirement and put it into small cap value. So you take instead of putting uh, you know a thousand dollars into your target date fund, you put maybe nine hundred into the target date fund and a hundred into your small cap value. Uh, we looked at that as a ninety ten split and an eighty twenty split, and then we also created uh, many tens of new. Uh, new target date fund glide paths to see if we could do better. And in and for each of those, we compared and looked at uh, the risk profile over time, what the risk of uh, uh, balance decline was, and also the returns that someone would get. And, uh, and we're talking, as I remember, we're talking here about at age 65. I mean, the assumption is that there's this period, either from birth or from whatever age, to 65, and then from 65 on, that's another decision, correct? That's correct. Okay, so we're going to get ourselves to retirement, and how how much money are we likely to have with these different strategies? So what what we found was that uh, if uh, if somebody put uh, $10,000 per year into one of these choices uh, over uh, 40 years, so 25 to 65. Now, I'm thinking, by the way, of young people putting away 10000 and could it be a couple and one is putting away five and another's putting away five? <laughs> Absolutely. It's a round number. You could you, you can, can divide the answers by 10 or multiply them by you 10. Got it. You can okay. yeah, you okay. can Okay. I didn't want to scare people. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. No, it's it's good to save what you can and it doesn't have to be 10. Um, but just to keep things simple, that was what we used was 10,000. And uh, so 10,000 per year over 40 years. And then we looked at the median end balance and uh, also the growth rate. So the the uh, the median end balance, if somebody went with this Vanguard-like target date fund, was about $4.5 million. That number does include inflation, correct? Yes, that includes inflation. So um, to, to think of it in today's dollars, you might have to divide by two. It depends on inflation rates and things. But uh, So uh, yeah, using that Vanguard-like target date fund approach uh, results in about $4.5 million uh, saved in time for retirement. If you do the 10% small cap value 90% into the Vanguard-like, it increases the end balance by about a million dollars. Wow. So from $4.5 million to $5.6 million. And it does increase the risk in the later years a little bit because um, you've got Something that you have you have less fixed uh, fixed income, less bonds in your portfolio. Uh, can I just enter because that's an interesting aspect of 
adding some of that small cap value. Not only are you creating some additional growth compared to the other part of the equities that you're holding, but you've just automatically reduced the amount of the impact of the bonds. Yes. And so, and that's good. It is good. And so, uh, but an extra million dollars, uh, just with 10%, that's... That would be wonderful. Right. We could help people do that in retirement. What about 20%? How does that work out? 20% adds about another million dollars. Oh, that so. should not be a surprise, <laughs> should it? That's yeah. great. That's great. Yeah. And then the question was, well, what if somebody took your advice and invested in all small cap value for their early years, up to 25? And then uh, from 25, 35 on, started to diversify into ultimate buy and hold, and adding. People in may not know ultimate income. buy and hold. Let's just let's go back because I, I that first 25 years. So this assumes the newborn child yes. g- gets this account. Okay, yep. they're all small cap value, but that is small cap value U.S., small cap value international, and a a small slice of emerging market, small cap slash value. So that's just rolling along until age 25. Then the portfolio, which is being adjusted professionally, I mean, this is not something you have to decide. We, in essence, make that that decision uh, uh, for the investor who follow our work. They start adding other asset classes, correct? That's correct. And then by the time you're up to age 35, my memory is you've got some big, some small, some value, some growth, some U.S., some international, and you're starting to add little amounts of fixed income, correct? That's correct, too. Yep. Okay. And then you keep adding fixed income up to age 65. And at age 65, you're about 50-50 stocks and bonds. Yep. Okay. Sorry, I didn't – I get all excited there. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. <laughs> so, so so that's kind of the glide path that exactly. people went through. So it's not like they were small cap value all the time. No. Uh, it, it's, a, it's still going to be a balanced portfolio for most of that – period from 25 on. Yes. And for uh, an apples to apples comparison, if somebody follows that with the $10,000 per year invested from 25 to 65, that imbalance is $7.4 million. Okay. So we started with $4.5 million. Uh, and and by the way, let's make sure they understand. This is the medium, which means half, half above, half below. Okay, yep. half and of the si- simulated scenarios can be higher, half can be lower. Um, but it's you know that's a good uh, uh, if you were going to pick an estimator, that's probably the one you want. Okay, but here's the one I want. I want one that's way better than that. And some did come in way better than that. Could you have theoretically, according to the Monte Carlo, gotten 10 times the $4.5 million? Uh, you always have a chance of getting lucky. So, okay. yes. And uh, you and I both want that one. We yes. Both, we both want the lucky one, yeah. But when you looked at the bad ones, because there are going to be some bad ones, they're all theoretical. Yep. But how bad was bad? 
That was one of the biggest surprises is uh, I looked at the lower 5 percentile and the lower 10 percentile for all of these simulations. So that means you know, 90% of the time you're better than the lower 10 percentile. And even though the median was going up as you took more risk, the very bad low 10 percentile numbers didn't change very much. Um, and I think that's because, and you can see this in the histories, uh, I think that's because although uh, taking more risk with small and value means uh, you go down uh, farther when the market is down, mm -hmm. uh, the recovery is so much greater in the long term that you're falling from a, the longer you're invested in those asset classes, the higher height you're falling from, so to speak. Yes. And so um, the the uh, the added bottom risk wasn't that the the risk of a significantly low or small end balance didn't go up significantly. And of course, there's there's the difference between ex, uh, experiencing that huge loss when you're 25 and when you're 65. Absolutely. But by the time you're 65, you're half in bonds, right? So, so I mean, you that's, have that. That's built to try to address to ad address that. So let me go back one more time. You 4.5 million. Then you add that's the that's the Vanguard target date portfolio theoretically. That's uh, having invested four hundred thousand uh, dollars over forty years, ten thousand mm -hmm. dollars a year. Then uh, five point five or five point six six uh, for ten percent uh, small cap value, uh, and then twenty percent small cap was six point uh, six or so. Yep. And then up to about 7.4 if you use the our, our, our particular target date portfolio approach. Now, I, I've got a problem here. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling responsible to these people who we're working for. I know how hard you've worked on this project. And uh, um, I can't even start to tell you how many times my wife has been mad at me because I've worked too many hours on this myself. I'm not going to live for 40 years. And you could actually; it's possible. I'm hoping for. Yeah, it. <laughs> that's great, and uh, and we and we hope you're able to continue to manage these portfolios. But but I think it's an interesting challenge. How difficult would it be if the Merriman Foundation had enough money in order to support? a normal operation. Not everybody's going to work for free like you've been working or I've been working. But let's just say that we got big enough that we could afford to have somebody working on this project. How difficult will it be for somebody to maintain these portfolios for others so they can take advantage of them? I don't think it's very difficult. The um the maintenance of the motifs, uh, which is the way we're offering this uh, this new uh, target date glide path, it, it only takes a little bit of time on a quarterly basis to and and there may be things we can do working with motif to make it so that it's even more automated than that. Uh, so that's that's something we need to keep working on to make it as simple and maintainable as possible. But right now, it's uh, you know it's a quarterly effort of uh, you know less than a day's work, something like that. 
uh, motif. You just brought the, up the magic word here yeah. because uh, uh, people can go to Vanguard. They don't need motif. They can go to Vanguard and they can do this on their own. Uh, with the 10% or the 20%, or they could go to 30% if they wanted to. I mean, that's up to them. That would suggest higher risk and and, and higher return. Uh, or they can look at our recommendations, and they could go to Schwab or TD Ameritrade or, or somebody, a Vanguard, and they could put those to work on their own. Absolutely. They could build these portfolios. They don't need us. They need us to be upgrading the portfolios and telling them about changes we think they should make, but they can do it. But Motif, tell us about how Motif works and why we recommend it, whether whether you're using our recommendations or you have your own portfolio that you want to do this. Uh, motif is just it's the most convenient and cost uh, probably simplest and possibly the cheapest probably the cheapest way to uh, to implement this because motif lets you buy up to 30 assets they can be stocks or ETFs they for, can't be mutual funds that's right they that's can't, important they can't be mutual funds but you can buy 30 stocks or ETFs for 995 and uh, it gives us the ability Paul and me the to to create something that follows this glide path um, and to create multiple motifs for different uh, retirement dates and so there's a very high degree of convenience and relatively low cost to be able to uh, offer this, buy it, rebalance. Uh, there are some drawbacks. I don't know if you want to get into those at yeah, this point. Yeah, yeah, so full disclosure. The reason, one of the reasons that we have the small cap value recommendations in here is that there's a better chance of many of the listeners automating a target date fund with Vanguard or some other similar target date fund through their 401k or a broker uh, than at Motif. Because for a community-created Motif like ours is, you can't do automatic deposits. You can't do automatic dividend reinvesting. You can't do automatic rebalancing. And so those things mean that it takes a little bit of time, not a lot, but a little bit of time on the part of your listeners if they want to invest through Motif. And we know there's tremendous value in automation. So that's why yeah. that's why we have the other options here, because uh, if the difference between automation and not, uh, if automation is going to be what makes you invest, there's a huge return in that. <laughs> Absolutely. But let me, let me make sure that our listeners do understand this. This doesn't have to be complex if you can compromise a little bit. True. Now, here, here's what you could do. You could send a check into Motif. They're, they're a brokerage firm. That's what they are. But they're uh, an automated brokerage firm is the way that they run their operation. They aren't telling you what to buy, although they do have some of their own motifs available to the public. But if you're going to use the work that you and I are providing, you could deposit a check for $50 every month, 
and you could rebalance that $50 into the portfolio so that you had the right balance of small and value, et cetera, U.S., international, emerging markets and all. But that's going to cost you $9.95. And I don't like that. I would rather, if you could invest, let's talk IRAs here, the $5,500 the first week of the year, you know, get it in as early as you can, and then do the transaction once, $9.95. Then, in theory, you wouldn't have to do anything more for a whole year except that Motif has a minimum of two $9.95 charges, which means whether you transact business in the second half of the year or not, they're going to take another $9.95 out of your hide. Let's put that in perspective. You do that for 40 years, $20 a year. What has that cost you? Well, it sounds like $800. And remember, you've got maybe 12 different ETFs in that portfolio, and you're able to rebalance automatically all 12 of them at one time for $9.95 total. Oh, that's a bargain. It's not commission-free like you can get at Vanguard or Schwab, or but it's close. Now, it's time for a little more full disclosure because, as many of our listeners know, the foundation, not Paul Merriman, but the foundation receives $1 out of each one of those trades, which means that for the work that we do, we would get $2, which means that if we worked for you for 40 years, you will have paid the foundation, get ready, this is going to cost you about $80. And regardless of whether you use our strategy or somebody else's, it's still going to cost you the $9.95. And I know there's some listeners out there thinking, Merriman, you've got a conflict of interest, but you know what I'm thinking? Yeah, of course I have a conflict of interest. My my interest is in seeing you get ahead for the long term. But I see that $1 per trade as the way to ensure that the Merriman Foundation continues to educate people on how to be a more successful investor. And we don't just do target date fund work. As, as we've talked, we help with 401ks. We help with all sorts of, of investment decisions that people have to make. And I can't be the only one writing the checks. So <laughs> anyway, there's the for full disclosure. Now, what have I left off in terms of uh, the motif? Is there, oh, I know. Dividends. You said they don't reinvest dividends. No okay? automated dividend reinvestment. No automated. Yeah. But remember that check I want to have you put in once a year or maybe once a quarter if you want to pay $40 a year for commissions? At that moment, you pick up any cash that's sitting there from dividends and get it reinvested. Right. So that can be taken care of once a year or twice a year, however you choose to do that. What other shortfall is there? I think those are the big ones. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and you can't have the automatic out of your checking account right. coming in. I think they eventually will because I, I, I think there will be a demand for people using motifs like ours 
that people will want to automate that, and and they should because they get paid for it. Uh, and by the way, one thing too, let's say you really like the work that you and I are doing. Somebody likes us, and they want to use that strategy, but they want a little gold in the portfolio. All right. We don't put gold in the portfolio for good reasons, but it doesn't mean that your good reasons aren't just as good as our good reasons. How would somebody use our portfolio but add maybe a gold ETF? Well, we're we're going to be very uh, open about what the glide path is. There'll be a Google Doc at the website that people can look at that looks that shows exactly what the um, asset allocation is over time. So if somebody wanted to download that and change the percentages, uh, they they could uh, build their own quite easily. Or uh, you could at Motif open it up and you can edit the. You can start with a portfolio. You can start with a motif like ours, and you can change it. The trick there is on a target date fund that's changing over time. Then you have to manually kind of go back and see well how has the target date changed and updated, or look at the the Google Doc on the website and uh, the, it'll be a Google Sheet actually. And, so it uh, might take it. Uh, ten minutes a year, half an hour a year. What? Yeah, ten ten to fifteen minutes should do it. It'd but you have your gold. Sure. <laughs> if you and want Robert your gold, Service you can have said your gold. the Alaskan poet. He said, "It's not the gold I'm seeking; it's the finding of the gold." <laughs> so I know gold is important to some people. Can we talk for uh, just a minute about the how to turn? Now, I wrote an article called $3,000, and I noticed when I looked at your notes, you're talking $5,000, so you're talking about people who have a lot more money to put aside for their <laughs> grandkids, but or the $365 a year, which is the other way to do this. But um, So let, let me see if I understand how a person could use our motif. And I don't know whether you know enough about the back office of Motif to give me the exact answer, but let's give it a try. I open an account in my name. I'm the grandpa. And I want it eventually to go to my grandson, let's say a new grandson, and or let's make it a granddaughter. I have a granddaughter I want to help with her retirement. I put away 365 and I open an account at Motif. Can I open an account for $365? Yes. Okay. I click the button or whatever it is that says I want to have this Merriman target date portfolio that's 2080 or something. And automatically that 365 is distributed amongst some small cap value, U.S. international, and that slice of emerging markets. Yep. Then the next year, I want to do another 365. I just send the check in, do the rebalance. Now, the problem here is I'm going to have to pay that $20 each year, right? Yes. All right. So maybe maybe what I do is I say, well, I don't want to be paying $20 on 365. I'll put in the first five years or I'll, I'll put in more to, to, to get started so that I bring my costs down. I keep building that up in my name, which means I may have to pay a tax here or there. It'll be small. I mean, the investment's only 365. At some point, 
when my granddaughter's 16 years of age and she's mowing lawns to make money in the summer, she'll be strong. Uh, we can match that money that she makes out of this account, and it could go into a Roth IRA for her. Can you transfer, and this is where you may not may not know, Chris, can I transfer money from my account into her Roth account at Motif? Do you know that answer? I don't know for certain, okay. but I, I do know uh, when I've tried transferring money brokerage to brokerage uh, like that with other brokers, it's never been an issue. So I think there's a high likelihood it, it would work, yeah. So I'm thinking as we are going to have a page of Q&A on this whole process, that that's one of the questions we should be ready to answer. Just how easy will it be to to build this this Roth IRA for a grandchild? Uh, you know, you I think you uh, alluded to the headline, but I'm gonna, which is this turn three thousand or three hundred and sixty five dollars into uh, fifty million. Yep. But uh, another way to look at it, uh, when we ran the simulations. Um, I I did it with and without the grandparent contribution or without the parent contribution from birth, right? So the numbers we talked about earlier were basically your working years saving. And uh, what's amazing is that little contribution that a parent or a grandparent can make can more than double the median end balance. Mm -hmm. So uh, your impact on a young person, if you can help invest for their future and make sure that it remains protected, set aside, not touched, if it's invested wisely, can be phenomenal and really dramatic. And I think a lot of people wouldn't appreciate that, um, but I, I think that's that's an, in, an incredible thought that you've sparked in people. And I know a number of uh, friends of mine that are trying to do things like that. And uh, even within our own family, um, there, you know, it sparked a lot of interest in trying to help build the security of that next generation. I want to, uh, um, I'm going to give you a great pat on the back. I, I, I said it earlier. I think you've done amazing work for our our uh, our followers, our listeners, and just, our and just our readers. To help. <laughs> well, I and I know. I mean, you're that you're that kind of a person. But I think it's important for people to understand. And there's one example that we're working on right now about the kind of thing that we feel is our responsibility, and that is to be finding ways to not only get people the return that we're talking about but to figure out a way to do it that they have peace of mind. Because I think you mentioned that the key is to keep people in the process. Uh, we are our own worst enemies when it comes to uh, long-term investments because we do have a tendency to want to second-guess the future when we know we don't know the future. And we know tons of past that say if you'll just stay the course – that doesn't mean it'll always be that way, but at least in the past, those that stayed the course with broadly diversified portfolios won, and that's what we're after. We recently ran into this challenge, uh, and I'd like you to tell the story about how we selected a particular ETF 
that while it probably will have a very fine long-term return, we decided, and it's your work, so I give you credit, that we should make a change, not because it's going to make more money, but because it's going to smooth the path to success. Please share that story. Well, and it may it may make more money in the long run too. We don't really know. We'll find out. Uh, when we set up the best in class uh, portfolio of ETFs to implement your ultimate buy and hold uh, portfolio. We uh, did a pretty thorough analysis, I thought, of the ETF candidates, and we looked very closely at their uh, how small they were and uh, how value-oriented they were. A lot of the factors that you've considered in previous podcasts, how many uh, stocks or equities each one has, um, what their expense ratios were. We, we looked very broadly and made the best call we could. And we published that very openly. And uh, after a short period of time, we started to get some feedback from some of your listeners that the small cap value fund chosen in the United States, which is a Guggenheim fund, uh, RZV, has a uh, an undesirable characteristic called negative momentum. And so uh, you know, essentially what that means is that instead of uh, holding on to assets that are increasing in value, sometimes it holds on too long while they're decreasing in value. And uh, we had some phenomenal input from some of your readers and listeners. Uh, Chris, uh, there's a Chris in your listener base. He had another Chris who uh, has actually uh, exchanged a lot of emails with me, very thoughtful. And I, th I think through the feedback of the community, uh, we have a better idea now for how to move forward. And we're going to uh, switch to some uh, funds that I think on balance, if you look at all of their factors, so not just small, not just value, not just the number of stocks, not just expense ratio, but also momentum, profitability, quality, some of these other factors that we know from the recent academic research can drive future performance. Uh, I think we're gonna be able to uh, make a recommendation that improves on that RZV. And for the target date funds, which are heavily tilted towards small cap value, we'll probably use two funds in the early years. Uh, and then that'll that's give two us- two U.S. That's two U.S. funds, and yes. one international? One international, one emerging markets, okay. yeah. And uh, so I, uh, I really value the input from the community. And I also, uh, you know, I'll be the first to admit, we're-, we're far from fallible or, or, or uh, unfallible. We, we make mistakes, right? And uh, we're just doing our best. And the thing that motivates me is I wanna have recommendations that are good enough for my kids. And if it's good enough for my kids, it's yeah. good enough for your audience. And uh, we're just always striving to make it better. But the feedback from the community uh, was incredibly helpful and I hope we continue to get more. That's great. So at this point, we have uh, target date funds uh, starting in the year 2020. I mean, they're coming online yep. now. And uh, they go out through 2085 or 2080. You, uh, uh, I don't remember. 2080. But, yeah, 2080. 
And uh, I've mentioned that to people, and they laugh at me. But then when I explain why we go to 2080, they nod their head, ah, that's a good idea. Uh, people can uh, come to our website and see the glide path. Uh, you have mentioned expenses a couple of times. Do you recall off the top of your head what the average expense ratio is of our target date portfolio? I don't. Okay. <laughs> you know, I think it's like 0. .16 if I that's, – that's the number that we'll, – we'll, we'll have that – uh, at our uh, uh, Q&A page as, as well. Uh, and so people need to find out if they can be comfortable with motif. Now, let me suggest something. I'm trying to help people for a lifetime, and not my lifetime because that's short, but their lifetime, and hopefully that's very long. And I even think in terms of the work that we do will hopefully not only impact you, but will impact your kids. Every time I teach a class at Western and I got a room full of 20-somethings sitting there, I'm thinking, I'm not just talking to them. I'm talking to kids they don't even know they're going to have. And those young kids are going to learn the right way to invest, hopefully, rather than getting getting involved in what I will call less productive uh, kinds of uh, of investments. So uh, I w- what I would say is for people who in fact are uncomfortable putting all of their of their IRA in motif that they could do a Vanguard account with twenty percent small cap value if they're a young investor. They could have part of it there. They could have part of it with Motif. They could have part of it with a target date fund at Vanguard without any small cap value. They they could do the uh, glide path that we have at Motif at, at Vanguard. At I, Vanguard, I, yeah. yeah. They, so lots of different ways to go, and that flexibility is important. Okay. Well, I just want to say a big, fat thank you for all the work that you have done. I know it's been hundreds of hours of research. I know you get paid nothing for all of this work. I really appreciate that. I hope our our, our listeners and readers appreciate that. And uh, as I said, this is the most important podcast I've done. This is the most important work I have done in my career because I believe the work that we're doing, here's what the outcome could be. It could be that we will actually attract a following sufficient to get other, maybe even a mutual fund company to put it together so they didn't have to go to Motif to get this. They could, wouldn't it be something that they could go to Vanguard and get this? I mean, That'd be fantastic. Yeah. I don't care that we're the ones that provide it. I just want this kind of a strategy to be available for our young people. By the way, young to me is 20, 30, 40, even 50 is young to me. <laughs> so uh, thank you, Chris, very much. Well, thank you, and Paul. We'll it's, be talking more, I know. And to our listeners, let me tell you what you can do next. Uh, one, you can go to paulmerriman.com, and uh, there you'll find an article that Chris has written. I know the working title is Achieving Success with Target Date Funds. I like that title. 
And uh, secondly, you can visit motifinvesting.com. If you wish to see uh, our portfolios, and, and by the way, we have many portfolios there, but only one uh, target date portfolio, uh, you can go to the resources link and then to community motifs, and there you would go to Merriman Diversified. That's the what you would put in the, the, uh, the search engine there. And you can see this portfolio as as uh, uh, as well as the many others that we have developed, and uh, certainly at the homepage at uh, uh, paulmerriman.com, you'll be able to see the glide path analysis uh, for those of you who would like to uh, look at it over the uh, the 65 year period and see when we change from. Uh, one asset class to another. So as always, we do all we can to educate you, to make you a more independent, successful investor. Let us know how we can continue to help and do us a favor. Pass this information along to, uh, along to some friends, family members, uh, others that might be able to put this work Uh, information to work for their financial future. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.